Drama Revival, the show dedicated to stories told the medium of sound, showcasing the diversity and vitality of modern audio theater. Here's your news, reviews, discussion, and of course, stories. I'm your host, Fred. That great theme music is by Roger Gregg of Crazy Dog Audio Theater. Today, we wrap up our series celebrating the work of Norman Corwin, audio luminary who turned 100 years of age this month. Uh, this will actually be a documentary today. Uh, what we're about to hear was produced in 2006 by the BBC, and it may be uh, definitely among the most, if not the most, recent interview of Norman circulating out there. Um, it's a really nice production, features lots of uh, samples of his work, um, and interspersed with anecdotes of what radio was in America, uh, what it was like to be in the 40s and 50s working in radio, as well as the magic of this talented man who came into his own on the air. Uh, runs about an hour, so we'll get right into it. BBC's Audience with Norman Corwin, 2006. Enjoy. I have a century to look back on. I was around ambient, walking and taking nourishment when radio came in. I visited the home of a friend, a kid like myself, who had a little crystal set. And he whisked off his earphones and put them on my head. And I was thrilled to hear Morse code. Even though it was just a series of beeps, I thought how wondrous this was. Never dreaming that radio would be my love, my mistress, my wife, and my boss for the majority of my life. Well, lucky you. You happen to dial this program in time to attend a trial stranger than any since we first learned the knack of breathing. And that was a long time back. The poor folks listening to other stations will lose all this. But congratulations to you for being no such fool as to miss the undecided molecule. The Columbia Workshop presents the first of 26 by Corwin. Descent of the Gods, a speculative fancy by Norman Corwin, having to do with some familiar gods in unfamiliar circumstances. Orson Welles in Norman Corwin's New York, a tapestry for radio. Columbia presents Corwin. I uh, got into the business through a love of poetry. I happened to be in New York doing publicity. I was a publicity flack. And while there, I became interested in New York City radio. I proposed a program of poetry to the station, and they said, would you be willing to go on the air Tuesday nights from 9.15 to 9.30? Of course, we could pay you nothing. So I was on the air for about three or four months when the program chief of CBS, by accident, tuned in that station, and I found myself invited to be a director of programs. And the astonishing thing, I think to any radio person hearing this, it will be hard to stay seated, he proposed the title Words Without Music for the program. Then, after a moment of reflection, he said, why don't we call it Norman Corwin's Words Without Music, a proprietary title? 
Well, once the, that my name was attached and preceded the title, Norman Cohen's Woods Without Music, I would have broken both legs and arms to make it the best possible work. At that time, I must explain that in this country, at least, poetry was considered unmanly. It was considered suspiciously on the spectrum toward the sissy. And what my series did was to take poetry and dramatize it with actors. And uh, I suddenly I began to get letters from teachers and professors around the country saying, thanks to you, we are now studying poetry. And thanks to you, the class is eager to listen. The author dedicates this poem to all aviators who have bombed defenseless civilian population and machine-gunned helpless refugees. In 1939, which was my first full year in network radio, I did a program called They Fly Through the Air, written out of hot indignation because I had picked up a book by Vittorio Mussolini, one of the sons of Benito Mussolini. Your younger listeners may not even remember that Mussolini decided to go to war against poor, poverty-stricken Ethiopia, which had no armaments beyond a few uh, lightly armed cavalries. He had been a bombardier, unopposed in the air, and he wrote a book in which he described the bombing of an Ethiopian cavalry. And he said, from on high, when the bomb burst among the horses and men, he wrote that it looked like, from the air, like a budding rose unfolding. And he said, it was a beautiful sight. And that made me so angry that in hot indignation, I wrote this play. How looks the morning to you, gentlemen? You there, gunner in the turning tip-up seat. Were you admiring the sunlight on that river to the north? And you, with earphones on, what thoughts think you between them? Of life, of death, of poker hands, of breasts, of thighs, of furbelows, spaghetti, of your leader, of the enemy? Oh yes, the enemy. Why, one would think that on so fair a day as this, hostility should scatter like breath upon the air. Surely this sweet and fertile land can bear no hate. Yet you must have an enemy below, else why a belly full of bombs and gun belts stuffed with cartridges? Say, there are an awful lot of people on that road, aren't there? Yeah, it looks like some more refugees. Sure got them on the run this morning. Okay, set your sight. Pick the center of the mob. All right. Just keep her over the road. Hold that heading. Stand by. Ah, there she goes. That's fascinating. What a spread. Looks just like a budding rose unfolding. Must have been two, three hundred in that crowd. Okay, man the guns. No point letting any of the rest get away. Well, that's that. Yep. Let's call it a day, huh? 
Getting on toward lunchtime anyway. Yeah, I'm getting kind of hungry. Chicken tetrazzini today. Yeah, come to think of it, that was a pretty thorough job of strafing. You know, that work always reminds me of mowing wheat. As though some invisible mower were cutting across the field. Nice symmetrical pattern, isn't it? To my great surprise, I found myself and my picture and a review, a laudatory review, in a national magazine, in Time magazine. It won the award for the outstanding drama of that year in radio, in American radio. And that really launched me in the eyes and ears of CBS. I was invited to direct a series called Pursuit of Happiness, a phrase that comes from the Declaration of Independence. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. The series dealt with Americana, unblushingly so. And what that series did for me was to introduce me to big Lee actors. And through that, I formed a lifelong friendship with Charles Lawton and Elsa Lanchester. And so much so that when they left New York, they said, if you come, ever come to California, and I'd never been, you must be our guest. And the time came when I went to California, and they met me at the airport, and I stayed in their guest house for three months. Uh, I was introduced to a great many stars in that fashion. So what that did was to move me into the big league of actors, name actors. And that stood me in good stead when later on there were programs of national commemorative importance. Here in sunny Southern California, about uh, an hour's drive north of Los Angeles, we have the Thousand Oaks Library, which houses the American Radio Archive. I'm Jeanette Berard, and I'm the librarian for Special Collections, and as such, I take care of the American Radio Archives, which covers the golden age of broadcasting, as we call it, which is from the 1930s to the 1960s. And in it here, we're looking at the Norman Corwin Collection. And as you can see, it covers most of a wall, about 40 feet long and 7 feet high, of Norman Corwin's works from the 1930s to today. There are over 200 boxes here, and they contain his letters, diaries, contracts, correspondence, photographs, scripts. If we walk over here, you can see some of our oversized collections, and this one houses some of the scripts. Opening this, one of the first things we see is The Man from Monticello, a script uh, relating to Thomas Jefferson. And as you flip through it, you can really see Norman's style, where he has worked on this from type copy that's typed on yellow legal pad that you would normally write on, and then interwritten so much that you can hardly see the original typing on some pages. The page we're looking at now is corrected in three different colors. 
Here we have box number 84, which has correspondence and a manuscript related to Orson Welles. Welles appeared in several of Corwin's productions. Some greeting cards <laughs> in 1957 signed Rita Hayworth and Orson Welles. See, here's a, a telegraph from Orson Welles to Norman Corwin saying, Doing your show last week was really a great thrill. Please may I do some job or other for you this week on your Bill of Rights program. All best regards, Orson. This was 1941, December 11th. <laughs> All right, here we are in box 88, which includes some correspondence with Betty Davis and a little handwritten note from her and signed, Well, My Love, Betty. <laughs> Columbia presents Corwin. In the late 30s, there was a series that stood as the diadem and the crown of CBS's radio drama, and that was called the Columbia Workshop. It was largely experimental, and it did not hesitate to use that word which has since become frightening in most of radio. There's very little experimentation done. It was a mark of distinction to be invited to direct or to have a script done by the Columbia Workshop. Indeed, I remember once that Val Gielgud, a first-class radio director in Britain, was invited to the helm of the Columbia Workshop. And uh, much attention was paid, much publicity given to that. Anyway, the same program manager who had proffered me the distinction of a proprietary title said to me one day, how would you like to take over the Columbia workshop for six months, for 26 programs? And we could call it 26 by Corwin. And the announcement each week was the Columbia Workshop presents the 12th of 26 by Cohen, the 14th, even the 13th. I went after that like a hungry trout after a fly. And while at the moment it was offered, and, but when I got home from the studio that night, I thought, what have I done? to write and direct and produce a program each week. And I had to uh, rearrange my living mode by renting a cottage in a rustic part of New Jersey across the Hudson River. And uh, there I was away from the city and I did nothing but grind out these programs and come to the city to direct them. The program was uh, scheduled for Sunday night at 10 o'clock and uh, it was a half hour and I did not know when I left the studio what the subject of the next week's program would be and I had to start uh, Monday morning hoping that I'd have a good night's sleep Sunday on the next program and it was done under such pressure that a messenger would come from the city, which is about 20 miles away, to deliver pages of the script as they came out to the composer, 
to the engineering department. I had at my disposal only a typewriter. I didn't even have a secretary. Well, I had one in New York, but would be remiss for a young unmarried writer to have a secretary, a female, in a cabin in the woods. And so uh, I had just myself to lean on. And uh, the network engaged, employed an orchestra of about 45 pieces. And they could be uh, loaned or paid for or rented by sponsors for programs. And because of that, I did not have the same size orchestra week after week. And sometimes I had eight men. Sometimes I had 48 men. But uh, I had my choice of composers, which was nice. And I wisely chose Bernard Herrmann, who was the best of the American composers. One of those programs was called The Odyssey of Runyon Jones, the fantasy about a boy who loses his dog, who is a, uh, an auto chaser and tie a nipper class four. And that made him a cur mandated to the place where all deceased, ill-behaved curs are sent, and that is purgatory, of course. And the boy sets out to find that dog in purgatory because he has not accepted that the dog has died. And on the way, he meets Mother Nature and Father Time. And you mean to say that you came all the way here to ask if I know anybody who can help you find a dog named Putsy? Yes, Father Time. Uh, don't you realize that I'm very busy? Yes, Father Time, but it won't take you long to tell me whether... Quiet, quiet. I've got to listen for the time signals. means that the eclipse of three moons on Jupiter was right on time. Uh, he was a little dog about so... When you hear the time signal, it will be exactly half past 1.62 on Uranus. Ah, shucks. That was 37 thousandths of a second late. I must make a note of that. We'll have to make it up in the year 7,302. Uh, now, what was it you wanted, little man? Well, sir, uh, could you tell me how I could get to Kirkatory? Because my dog, Putsy... Oh, yes, yes. Uh, was he a delinquent dog? No, sir, a mongrel. When you hear the musical goes, it will be the 172nd millionth anniversary of the birth of the first dinosaur. Remind me to send an anniversary message of facilitations to M.N. What did you say, sir? Uh, oh, so you weren't paying attention, huh? Yes, I was, but I only came never here... Never mind, never mind. Now, where did you say your dog was? In purgatory. I just wanted to know how to get there. Aha. Uh -huh. Well, now, the only way that... My, my, look at that green clock. It's getting towards morning on Neptune already. Pussy, can you hear me? No, he cannot. I will tell him goodbye for you. Thank you, sir. Uh, wait a minute. Jones, where did you get that mark over your right eye? Oh, this... Oh, that was nothing. I, I got that in the accident. What accident? When I tried to prevent Putsy from being run over. And? Nothing. Well, didn't you reach Putsy in time? No, sir. Almost. But you see, 
The car ran over me first. Over the car ran over me? Yes, sir. That's how I got killed. Oh, you, you, you mean to say, you, you, well, that's... Well, now... We might consider the <clears throat> seventh... Just a moment, Jones. Yes, of course. Jones, the status of the case is changed by the fact that you gave your life to save your dog. That comes under the priorities ruling affecting the seventh clause of the Constitution of Purgatory. I see. Well, goodbye, Jim. No, 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 I can see Putsy. Yes, sir. We'll release the said Putsy from Kirkatory in your custody. Y you mean now? Yes. The officer will take you. Come, Mr. Jones. Uh, yes, right away. Thanks. Gee. When World War II started, there was a movement in America that was very strongly against our getting involved in another European war. Roosevelt and the American War Department had a hard time selling the idea of aid to Britain even. I'm abashed even to recall that there was a movement called America First in which the slogan was England will fight to the last American. The American government knew better, and they knew that that would have to be our war sooner or later. And uh, part of that strategy was to do a series based on the English people. And I was approached to do that series, to write and direct and produce that series. And I said, I will be happy to do this so long as I do not have to take directives from the War Department or the State Department or any American agency, so long as I can truthfully write about the English people as I find them. So they agreed to that, to my surprise and pleasure. And I flew to England. I had never been to England and got there and did a series called An American in England. It had to do with what the average American knows or thinks an average Englishman is like. And I had a little fun with that concept, you know, because a great deal of America thought of Britain as a country of Cockneys. Uh, my first program was called London by Clipper. The scene is an aeroplane halfway across the Atlantic, and the speaker is travelling to London by Clipper to find out and report on what life in wartime Britain is like. Oh, I'm pretty tired now. No sleep for the past two nights. You yawn two or three more times, and then you decide that war or no war, you're going to leave the Clipper to its crew, and the Atlantic to its weather, and England to tomorrow, and get some sleep crawl into your berth, do acrobatics, to undress, and then you lie in a sort of a stupor, drugged by the noise of the motors. After a while, you become conscious of a sound from the bridge, radio code. Isn't that the V symbol? V for victory. What's it doing on that receiver? I'm too tired to wonder. 
And then, for no good reason, you start to think of music. Maybe because of the rhythm set up by the vibration. You try to recall what little English music you've heard. It isn't hard at all to remember. It very obligingly runs through your head. And somehow or other, as you drop away into a spongy sleep, it all gets mixed up like a radio man's nightmare. The code and motors and Gilbert and Sullivan and pomp and circumstance and static and V for victory and the Atlantic night. Sure enough, going to England, you wonder whether you'll like the people as much as you like their cigarettes. Are the people a mild, mixed blend like their tobacco? Non-irritating? It occurs to you that we Americans as a whole know very little about Britishers. We've been speaking their language all our lives, and half our cities are named after theirs. We know more about English dogs and muffins and tweeds than about English people. So altogether... When you try to picture the average Englishman, he seems to you mainly one of two things, a cold, calm, aloof highbrow, or a funny little guy who sings. You look out of a window at a sky full of broken clouds and wonder where you got some of those ideas, maybe from the movies or the novels or the shortwave radio, BBC News Broadcasts, perhaps, very calm, very cultured they are about the news. They don't go in for the shouting and wheezing and high-pressure opinionizing that we do at home. No question about it, they're a cool bunch. Why, if the world were to come to an end at three tomorrow afternoon, they'd wait until the regular six o'clock broadcast and go on as usual. So, you know, I had a little fun with it. But while I'm reading from this script, I'd like to present the end of the piece. London is blacked out. The greatest city in the world lies in a vast hush between battles. You see rooftops faint in the light of the waning moon, and you make out the Thames. You make out the tall silhouette of Big Ben. And as you stand at the open window, Suddenly you hear airplanes overhead. There must be friendly planes or else you'd hear a siren or, or wouldn't you? Is that distant gunfire or a train crossing a bridge somewhere? Is that a siren or a bus starting up in low gear? The planes keep droning above you. They're headed east to the attack. They'll be flying over swastikas 20 minutes from now. I cannot tell you it will sound like apple polishing if I were to tell you how greatly I esteemed the British nation at war and the British people. To have stood up to that monster alone for so long was remarkable. And I found 
in every contact that I made with the radio people, with the military, with government people, nothing but courtesy, nothing but helpfulness, and nothing but a great spirit. Indeed, I interviewed in one of the programs, I interviewed the man in charge of Britain's health. And he said that government, in anticipation of air raids on their territory, had set aside a certain number of beds that amounted to several thousand for mental breakdown and for emotional stress. And they were deep into the war and not used. I walked one of the actresses home one night after a broadcast, and she said to me, you know, I miss the raids there had been a lull in the raids. And she said, I missed the raids, and I was astonished by that statement. I said, in what way? She said, well, when you left your home for work or left your work for home, you never knew whether you would make it. And therefore, you might be seeing a person, your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your cousin, your neighbor, for the last time. Therefore, people were kind. People realized the frailty of life in under conditions of war. And they were kind to each other and considerate. And I had never conceived of that possibility. One of the programs in the American and England series was women of Britain who fought a gallant war. The fourth of a series of six programs written and directed by Norman Corwin, produced by Edward R. Murrow, and broadcast from somewhere in the British Isles. Joseph Julian narrates, and the original musical score is by Benjamin Britten. lobby of a West End hotel and look down toward the crowded ballroom. It's very lively. Dancing is on full tilt. There's a dazzle of beautiful women in evening gowns and officers in the uniforms of half a dozen allies. It's all so gay you'd hardly think that there's a shooting war 80 miles away in the channel tonight. You move up from the ballroom toward the main entrance. The lighting is dim conserving electricity to save fuel. Suddenly, out of the haze, a magnificent number in a fur wrap swirls past you, leaving eddies of perfume in her wake. You take a deep breath. Good evening, sir. Shall I call a taxi? No, thanks. Just going for a walk. Very good, sir. That was the doorman. You go past him, through the revolving door, and step out into the night. It's not so black as it was last week. The moon's just coming up. You can see the Great Dipper behind the chimney pots of Maiden Lane. For a moment, you stand in the entrance, studying the sky. Ronnie, wait for John. Is, is that you, Ronnie? I'm afraid not, ma'am. Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you were someone else. It's so dark here. That's quite all right. Another good looker. Through these portals, past the most beautiful girls in London, apparently. Oh, well. You shove off into the moonlit night of the Strand and Fleet Street 
and walk east at a slow, philosophic pace. You walk down to a part of the city called, of all things, the city. Staggering desolation here. Acre after acre of bomb ruins, like the pictures of frontline towns in the last war. In the hush of the blackout, amid the moonlit ruins, you find yourself thinking about those glittering and exotic women you just saw in the fancy hotel. And you wonder, feeling a little lonely perhaps, about women in general, about the women of Britain in particular. You wonder what the war has done to them. Not much to judge by those you've just seen. But then you remember what a young RAF pilot told you the day you arrived. Don't judge us by the lobbies of a few hotels in London. See us as we are. That stops you in your tracks. Of course, see them as they are. Judging anything about England from a big hotel lobby is like judging the United States from a movie. That ought to be plain enough to anybody. In a marine boiler shop, you lunch with grimy welders, cutters, grinders, and drillers. Two-thirds of them women. The canteen is bustling. And over the loudspeaker following the one o'clock news, there's a talk by a woman member of parliament, Miss Ellen Wilkinson. You recall her from the days when Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco attacked Spain. Miss Wilkinson was fighting fascism when a good many respectable people were still doing business with Hitler. But her talk today concerns the new compulsory fire-watching for British women. The workers listen attentively. There will be a satisfaction later on in looking back and saying to oneself that it wasn't only the Russian women who stood in the hot spots and did their stuff. After the last war, children asked, What did you do in the Great War, Daddy? Well... After this one, there will be millions of children who will ask, what did you do in the Great War, Mummy? Or, for that matter, Granny? It will be pleasant to be able to say, oh, nothing much. I just helped to beat the Luftwaffe. In and late in October, or perhaps early November 1941, I was asked to prepare a script for what turned out to be the first transmission broadcast to all of the stations in the country, all four networks existing at that time. And this was in response to a request by President Roosevelt that American radio do something about the 150th anniversary of the ratification of the American Bill of Rights the first ten amendments of the American Constitution. And I uh, had not much time to do it. The very fact that it was to be the first of its kind on every station in the country made it a heavy challenge. And at that time, there had been relatively little written about those days. And I went down to the Library of Congress in Washington, in the hope that there was a transcript of the proceedings, and of course there was none. So tight was the schedule that I asked for and received permission to stay in the library after hours. And this great, vast 
building, one of the great libraries in the world, was cold. They had no need in the late fall and early winter of 1941 to keep that enormous building warm with nobody in it except a watchman or two. And I came down with a cold, of course, which uh, compromised my schedule. But I got over that, took a train, went to Los Angeles because that's where the casting opportunities were riper. And uh, on the way, uh, halfway across the country, came the news of the attack on Pearl Harbor because this program was scheduled for December 15, 1941, and the attack on Pearl Harbor came on the 7th. And it was the first appearance of the president after his speech declaring war against Japan. Once it became established that we were at war, I realized that I had my choice of actors. All of them wanted to be, as a patriotic service, wanted to be on that program. And that ended up with Jimmy Stewart being the narrator, and also in the cast were Lionel Barrymore and, uh, and Edward G. Robinson and the reigning stars of that day. In those days, there was no tape, so it had to be live. And to gather that many stars in the late afternoon in California was a trick. And uh, Orson Welles did not arrive until the last moments of the dress rehearsal because he was busy shooting out of town. One hundred fifty years is not long in the reckoning of a hill, but to a man it's long enough. One hundred fifty years is a weekend to the redwood tree, but to a man it's two full lifetimes. One hundred fifty years is a twinkle to a star, but to a man, it's time enough to teach six generations what the meaning is of liberty, how to use it, when to fight for it. Have you ever been to Washington, your capital? Been there lately? Well, let me tell you, it's a place of buildings and of boom and bustle, of the fever of emergency, of workers working overtime, of windows lighted late into the night. It's a handsome city, proud of its sturdy name, Proud of the men who stopped there and made decisions. Proud of its domes and lawns and monuments. Of course, Washington is like some other cities you've seen. It has streetcars, haberdasheries, newsstands, coffee shops and slums. At busy intersections, there are neon traffic signs which, when the light's against you, say, Don't walk. And when the light changes, walk. It's a tourist city. Which is proper when you think how much of history a busy guide can cover in a day, and when you realize that the District of Columbia belongs to all the people of the states. The tourists know that here their voices have been heard from clear back home, that here their votes are put to work. The tourists go to see the sites they've seen in a thousand pictures of, sites so famous and familiar that they're thrilled to find they look well, they, they look just like they thought they'd look. Washington Monument, for example, or the Lincoln Memorial. 
where the seated and relaxed Abe Lincoln sits between two mighty murals of plain words, his own words. With firmness in the right, as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in, to do all which may achieve and cherish a just and lasting peace among ourselves and with all nations. The city moves on busily outside the monument. The tourist goes to see the Capitol, the White House, the museums, sees all about him statues and inscriptions and more sayings than he's ever seen in his life before. They're wise sayings, profound sayings. At, at Union Station, for example. A man must carry knowledge with him if he would bring home knowledge. Samuel Johnson. The Archives Building. What is past is prologue. The Supreme Court. Justice, the guardian of liberty. But one of the best is in the Library of Congress. The noblest motive is the public good, Virgil. Ah, the tourist thinks that over. The noblest motive is the public good. And with this in mind, he climbs the marble stairs inside the library to come at length upon a case containing a handwritten document. The engrossed original of the Constitution of the United States of America. He sees that the manuscript is aging, that its words are worn as though from use. The writing's dim. It's hard to make it out. It's getting on in years. We, the people of the United States, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility, provide for the common defense, promote the general welfare, and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. Article 1, Section 1. All legislative The words are dim, but not the meaning of the words. The pens that put this down are dust, but not the marks they made. There was a time when this was shining parchment, when the text was easier to read, when the ink was not yet dry. Suppose that we stopped here in modern Washington before this shrine, were to return, go back, go back a little north by east in time and space to one bright afternoon in Philadelphia, that fine fall day when deputies from 12 free states subscribed their names to a new blueprint of a new society. And of the independence of the United States, the 12th, in witness whereof we have hereunto subscribed our names, George Washington, President and Deputy from Virginia. It was a, a big event. Everybody was tuned in. Apparently to this day, that audience for that program was the largest for any dramatic program in history. And it's a pleasant statistic to... Uh, ruminate about uh, years later. And from men beneath the rocking spars of fishing boats in Gloucester, from the vast tenancy of busy cities, roaring with the million mingled sounds of work, from towns spread thinly through the Appalachians, from the assembly lines, 
the forges spitting flame, the night shifts in the mines, the great flat counties of the prairie states, from the grocers, from the salesmen, from the tugboat pilots and the motor makers, affirmation, yes, united proudly in a solemn day, knit more strongly than we were 150 years ago this day. Can it be progress if our Bill of Rights is stronger now than when it was conceived? Is that not what you would call wearing well? The incubation of invincibility? Is not our Bill of Rights more cherished now than ever? The blood more zealous to preserve it whole? Americans shall answer, for they alone may know the answer. The people of America, from the east, from west, from north, from south, In 1945, the program manager who had engaged me was now doing war work for the government, and his successor came to me one day and said, we've been told by the War Department that an armistice is very close, and uh, we might have victory in Europe, and that we'd like you to stop what you're doing and prepare a program to be on the air on the day of victory in Europe, the evening of that day. And we will take an hour of prime time away from a sponsor and uh, give that to you. To me, it was the high point of the expression of that network's policy of freedom in what I did because that was a special program they did not ever say to me, what will it cost? They did not say to me, who are you going to use in the program? I, I ended up using no stars. What is your approach going to be? When will you show us the first 20 pages? None of that. And indeed, the first at the hierarchy of uh, president, vice president, and all the sub-vice presidents, heard of that program was when it was broadcast. And of course, this was done live. It was not done on tape. And uh, it went off without, without a flaw. Lord God of trajectory and blast, whose terrible sword has laid open the serpent so it withers in the sun for the just sea, Sheathe now the swift avenging blade with the names of nations writ on it and assist in the preparation of the plowshare. Lord God of fresh bread and tranquil mornings, who walks in the circuit of heaven among the worthy, deliver notice to the fallen young men that tokens of orange juice and a whole egg appear now before the hungry children that night again falls cooling on the earth as quietly as when it leaves your hand, that freedom has withstood the tyrant like a malter 
in a hostile sea, and that the soul of man is surely a Sevastopol which goes down hard and leaps from ruin quickly. Lord God of the top coat and the living wage, who has furred the fox against the time of winter and stored provender of bees in summer's brightest places, do bring sweet influences to bear upon the assembly line. Accept the smoke of the mill town among the accredited clouds of the sky. Fend from the wind with a house and a hedge him whom you made in your image and permit him to pick of the tree and the flock that he may eat today without fear of tomorrow and clothe himself with dignity in December. Lord God of test tube and blueprint, who jointed molecules of dust and shook them till their name was Adam, who taught worms and stars how they could live together, appear now among the parliaments of conquerors and give instruction to their schemes. Measure out new liberties, so none shall suffer for his father's color or the credo of his choice. Post proofs that brotherhood is not so wild a dream as those who profit by postponing it pretend. Sit at the treaty table and convoy the hopes of little peoples through expected straits and press into the final seal a sign that peace will come for longer than posterities can see ahead, that man unto his fellow man shall be a friend forever. For the first and only time in my life, mail came not in bundles, but in bags. Each bag would hold 5,000 letters, and they were dumped like a great Niagara, a cascade on my desk. And there were something like 10 or 11,000 letters. It kept pouring in. You got uh, reception, critical reception, that uh, somebody else will have to tell you because I would blush. It would sound like bragging, and I don't want to do that. Radio's importance during the war years was something that grew upon the historian later after television came in because uh, since television, radio was in the background. And it was an exciting medium because... It reached everybody. You didn't know where the arrows fell. That came home to me 25 or 30 years after I broadcast on another triumph when I was on my way to London. And the airplane left uh, Kennedy at 10 in the evening. And uh, uh, in the middle of the night, we were in the middle of the Atlantic and the lights were down and the passengers were sleep or trying to sleep, except myself. And I have difficulty sleeping in bed, let alone on an airplane. 
So the captain of the ship came uh, out of the cockpit. And uh, in those days, on that particular airline, first-class passengers, and since I was traveling on movie business, I was a first-class passenger, and they, the name, the last name of the passenger was on the back of his seat. So he went along uh, the cabin, he came to my, he saw I was awake, he saw my name, Corwin, and he said, are you by any chance related to Norman Corwin? And I said, I am he. Whereupon he recited the first 10 lines of On a Note of Triumph, which had been broadcast and published 30 years earlier. And he said that he had been a flyer in the war. When he came home, he heard that program and he got hold of the book, and he got hold of a recording, and then he played it once a year for his children. So, you know, you don't know who's listening and where. It's a wonderful medium in that respect. I was aware during the war that my programs presented a view of the world and the war, the reason, the nature of the enemy, the nature of our own ambitions. And I think that without realizing it, I was helping to shape opinion in this country. Later in life, recently and currently, I get letters from people who did not hear my broadcasts. At the time, they were too young. And they've heard playbacks or they've, uh, some friend has recorded the program or they've read some of the scriptures have been published. And so they write me with an air of discovery. And uh, the late returns from my broadcasting are very gratifying in periods when I'm down uh, and we all have that, I'm sure. It's nice to get such a letter and uh, a comment. Makes me realize that perhaps I was of some worth to radio and to the people who listen to it. As far as the lifespan of work and of living, as far as that is concerned, I measure that not so much by the work I've done as by events in world progress. I was born in 1910. In 1903, where an older brother was born, life expectancy in the United States was 43 years. It's now 76 years. There were no automobiles when I was born. There were no airplanes. And then to see radio come in, and then television, and to see the computer come in, and to see the miniaturization, to see rockets, to pick up a paper or magazine and see pictures of the terrain of Mars and the rings of Saturn, all of these things happening in one lifetime. It was a wonderful, rich life with many good breaks, some heartbreaks, but many good breaks and uh, a very great quotient of serendipity. But to give myself a, a due, I worked hard to, to take advantage of the serendipities.
and I'm still working hard and hope to continue working hard for a little longer. One of the nice things about this collection is we continue to get the material that Norman Corwin is producing today. He is writing regularly first and for the radio, and he is still performing with his students at USC. We have strong hopes that the collection will continue to grow for many years. Mr. Corwin's family is quite long-lived. His father lived to be 110, and we hope that there's uh, every good chance that Norman will live just as long and continue to provide us with fresh material for all of those years. I was asked in an interview once what I would like to read in my obituary. Well, of course, I'd love to be able to read, actually, literally read my obituary. That would be the one of the wonderful tricks. But uh, granted that I will not, I decided upon this. It would read as follows. Norman Cohen, aged 126, was killed yesterday in a duel with a jealous lover. His gun jammed. And that was the BBC documentary Audience with Norman Corwin. And as always, you can find out more about Corwin. Read, listen, enjoy normancorwin.com. Link of that will be at radiodramarevival.com as well. Uh, Next week, we change gears as we start to look towards the upcoming National Audio Theatre Festivals and their yearly celebration of audio theatre. Always good stuff happening out there in West Plains and we'll be here to celebrate. Uh, In the meantime, do check out our blog and podcast at radiodramarevival.com. We've got often promised news, reviews, and discussion up there. You can also always find us on iTunes. Search for Radio Drama Revival. That, however, wraps it up for this week. Radio Drama Revival is produced by yours truly, Fred Greenhalge. Copyright of individual shows remains that are original producers, but do please share this show as far and widely as you like. Radio Drama Revival originates in on-air radio at WMPG-FM, Greater Portland, Maine's community radio. It is podcast at radiodramarevival.com as a labor love. Till next time, keep your mind and your ears open. Thanks for tuning in and have a great week. Mm-hmm.